Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. And today we're going to tackle a really big topic, placing a price on emissions or carbon dioxide, otherwise known as carbon pricing. There are several approaches, such as a carbon tax or emissions trading schemes, probably more commonly known as cap and trade. But at the end of the day, they all involve trying to place a price on emissions. The basic economic assumption behind carbon pricing is that it would correct an underlying market failure that has led to increased concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Put simply, this assumes that the environmental and ecological and social cost of greenhouse gases are not accurately accounted for in the market price of goods that emit greenhouse gases. So attaching a price would potentially correct that market failure. Of course, all of this isn't simply aimed at increasing the price of emit of carbon, but rather it's aimed at a larger goal of reducing emissions by increasing the incentive to transition to lower emitting technologies or to decrease our overall usage through certain behavioral changes. So joining me today to talk about carbon pricing are um, some really, really great guests. And um, I'm, I'm excited to hear what they have to say about the topic. Uh, first up, Warren Call is a financial professional who works here in Traverse City. He's an investment in, in, works here in investment and private banking in Traverse City. He's also very active in a number of nonprofit and public policy initiatives. Thanks for joining us, Warren. Thanks, Rachel. Um, and for those of you who don't know, he's known as the best-looking banker in Traverse City. I that not my words. I well, heard thank it. you again. <laughs> uh, also joining us, Jan Get. Jan is a tax and business lawyer in Traverse City and the current chairperson of Traverse City Light and Power. Welcome. Thank you. Representing the utility sector, Zach Anderson is the manager of power supply at Wolverine, and Zach has worked with Wolverine to analyze how different carbon regulations might impact uh, their power supply and the electric consumers they serve, many of whom are Cherryland members. Thanks for coming down, Zach. Thanks for having me. And finally, rounding us out, Sarna Salzman is the executive director of SEEDS. They are a local nonprofit that is committed to fostering local solutions to global issues and working to build sustainable and durable communities. Welcome, Sarna. Thanks, Rachel. So certainly a, a broad range of backgrounds to talk about this. And before we went jump in, I just want to make one quick disclaimer. I have invited these guests here because they are smart and interesting and bring different perspectives. None of them are here speaking on behalf of their organizations right now. It's just meant to be a discussion about carbon pricing. So all opinions are their own. Did I do that right, Mr. Lawyer? Yes. Good. That was the small print. So let's go. Jan, since you're the only one of us with the word tax in your job description, can you uh, just really briefly explain what a carbon tax would look like and how it might be administered? Well, thank you, Rachel. Uh, it's an excellent question. A uh, carbon tax can look any way a legislative body wants it to look like. As any tax, it could be a tax on consumption. It could be a tax on production. It could be paid by producers. It could be paid by consumers. It could include all products. It can include only some products. And so in preparation for this, and obviously the rates will depend on what is your, um, what is it that you're taxing. And so as anybody who knows tax policy will tell you, the best tax is has a very high, very broad tax base, meaning everyone is subject to it, and it has very low rates. Conversely, the worst tax is the one that has a ton of exceptions with very high rates. 
So in preparation for this, I actually took a look at what is it that other countries have done, and I will be very quick. And it ranges from taxing all production or consumption to something as esoteric as, and this is my favorite, Iceland taxes only importers of liquid fossil fuels, period. It does not tax all fuel. It does not tax anybody but the importers of that fuel. And once again, where, where you fall on that continuum is probably what we're going to talk about today, because that's where the great policy of having a carbon tax meets the reality of enacting a carbon tax. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. And I think that a lot, a lot of this discussion today will be trying to dig through a carbon tax in theory versus a carbon tax in practice. Um, be before we get to that, you know, what we're ultimately talking about is market-based solutions to emissions reductions. And an another approach to that that's often tossed around is emissions trading schemes. And so I was kind of wondering, Zach, since you're in the power supply world, could you just talk about what the difference is between an emissions trading scheme versus a, a tax or a price directly on carbon? Yeah, so we, we see this a lot, um, whether it's sulfur or nitrous oxide, where you identify a pollutant and you identify what the right amount of that pollutant can be emitted from X source, whether that's a coal plant, a natural gas plant, some type of fossil fueled source, how much of that pollutant can it emit before it needs to go out to the market and look for uh, either a purchase or maybe there isn't a purchase to be had because there's scarcity in the market. All of those emissions credits have been used up and where that supply meets the demand sets a price on whatever the particular uh, piece of emissions that you're trying to control from a fossil plant typically. That's at a high level the basics of a cap and trade type program. Zach, you're saying just to clarify that if I own a coal plant, I get a certain amount of um, pollutant to emit into the atmosphere. And if I want to do more than that, I could either buy uh, Jan's extra unused pollutant credits from him, or I would have to find a different solution that did not emit pollution. Is that what you said? Correct. Okay. And it's great to be Jan in that scenario, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm if I have extra credits, I can sell them and potentially make profit somewhere. Although the reality is Jan won't make a lot of money because, as I'm sure Warren will tell us, the way that cap-and-trade system has been designed is essentially has flooded the market with the credits, which are basically worthless at this point because cap-and-trade allows for not having to make the difficult decisions of restricting the use and instead monetizing it, but to such a degree that I would probably just give it away to for you so that I don't have to deal with it anymore. Well, and that's been the reality is that the the price has not has has been so set so low in those those programs that it is non-functioning almost completely. Unfortunately, it actually works perversely because you lack the incentive to cut your carbon production because the price of carbon is set so low there there it's not a, it's not fulfilling its intended consequences. Okay, all, perhaps all true things, but one on the other side of that, one of the advantages of a, of a cap-and-trade model is it, it sets clear emissions reduction targets that are, um, I guess, a little bit more, there's a little bit more certainty about how much we'll see in emissions reductions, whereas with just adding a price onto carbon through just a straight tax, you don't have the same 
guarantee of any emissions reductions. That, that, Am I right? Or does somebody want to dispute that? Well, I, I think, well, sure, I spoke longer than you have, so I'll let you go first. Well, I, I agree that the the idea of having admissions targets is is great. The issue becomes that, number one, are those targets ever met? And you're trading off the stability of a target versus the stability of the price of energy. And what happens in cap and trade is you actually introduce more energy price volatility and more uncertainty to both companies and consumers and government revenues. All of that has added uncertainty under those kind of situations. The, the one thing I would add um, is f first with a cap and trade, obviously if you price, price it high enough, it eliminates a lot of the issues that cap and trade has had to date. Um, I think at a more philosophical level, if the idea of a carbon price is to take into account the externalities imposed by carbon, then I would suggest that an actual carbon tax is far more closely aligned to that goal than a goal of limiting emissions to a certain amount because it presupposes someone knowing what that right amount is. And so at a theoretical level, if you're saying that carbon imposes an externality, that externality is a cost that gets captured. Tax is a more accurate way of capturing that, whatever the consequences happen to be. So where I would disagree with Warren is, I don't, and I think inherent in the question was the assumption that you want to know what the level of the emission is going to be as the goal, as opposed to impose, recognizing the externality of carbon itself. And wouldn't one of the benefits of a tax in that scenario, theoretical benefits, <laughs> would be that um, you have an opportunity since it's supposed to be, generally when they're talked of, they're revenue neutral, and so you have an opportunity to actually um, generate revenue from carbon users and then return that revenue to the folks who are most affected by those negative externalities. In theory. Right, in theory. I, I, and, I think and, and in practice where it's been implemented well. Well, I, well, it's a, well okay. No, I'm, sorry. I was just going to say, the, the part that's hard about the idea that a carbon tax can be revenue neutral in that you give the cost to, say, it's all automobile users, and then you give some type of credit back to whom? The automobile user? Because it impacts me as a emitter of carbon in that regard. I don't know how that gets back to me. Or if you take it up one step in the chain and say, okay, GM, because you produce a carbon-emitting source, you pay the cost, well still as the consumer, that cost comes back to me. Whether you give me a tax credit or not, I don't know that it becomes revenue neutral. Well, and that, that's a fascinating topic. And this is where, hope, fortunately or unfortunately, the United States is coming in at the back end. And we have decades of other countries' experimentation with where does that money go. And I think that most economists, at least, would suggest that the money, the revenue should go to fix the other imperfections in the tax system. So, you know, there's our tax system is full of market distortions. And so the idea being that the best way to make this not a lag in economic growth, as most people think it would be, is to actually reduce those other distorting taxes. 
That is not to say that some countries have not attempted, as Sarna has mentioned, giving money to more worthwhile, what I would call worthwhile causes. But I think the general goal has always been to return that to reduce the other taxes as opposed to simply send a refund check. Now, sending a refund check is obviously the best way to buy the votes of people <laughs> to get the support for it. But from the economic standpoint, that's probably not the best way of using the revenue generated. Well, it seems too like you then absorb a significant amount of the revenue in the return process as opposed to simply restructuring something to be more efficient. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I've got a bunch of elves making checks and mailing checks. I have to pay all the elves kind of a thing as opposed to simply using that as a a restructure. And now I'm going to decrease income tax here and I have a carbon tax there and somehow those balance out. But one of the things, and I want to push, I want to come back to what Sarna said that I think we have to deal with is as we place a price on carbon, it has a kind of a, it's going to trickle down into all sorts of goods that we consume, right? And also basic household energy costs. And that does disproportionately impact lower income individuals who expend a larger part of their income on energy and are also have less appetite for an increase in energy costs. So there ha- I mean we have to we have to acknowledge that this is going that's going to happen with a carbon tax. Well, and How trying, do you design it to not? Trying to be striving to be revenue neutral is where a lot of these plans have gone and some of them have been successful, but they also a number of the ones that are successful strive to reverse that regressive nature of the cut or excuse me of the tax by implementing low income tax rebates. And that, again, that's a, another wrinkle that makes it difficult, and, and Jan's about to, to cut that one off, but <laughs> it, it is one solution that you can either, and, and it has been implemented in a couple of places where you cut the lower, when you cut income taxes, you cut the lower brackets, even to the point of providing uh, tax credit for the lowest income. Okay, so now before Jan jumps in, because I do want to hear this, but I um, was talking to someone else about this the other day, and one of the things we talked about, maybe we're biased. (laughs) But um, what about the poor middle income people, right? So I mean, low income people who maybe couldn't, let's, let's say they were in a position of of not really being able to afford their their energy bill already. Now they just have a larger energy bill they can't afford, right? Or or whatever. But what about, you know, your your standard middle class who's not quite paycheck to paycheck, but they also can't, they also would be and and so you know what I mean, it's not as simple as saying, well, we're going to do tax credits or low income. Hmm. Since you both wanted to know what I have to yeah, say Yeah, we about do want to know. All right. So um, one of the reasons why the Internal Revenue Code is as complicated as it is, is this overwhelming desire by policymakers to use a tax code as a tool of social policy. If your goal is to eliminate the externalities associated with carbon, that's what you do. If you want to mitigate the social impact of that, you don't do it through the tax code. You give people basic income or you give them a rebate. But it is it is a horrible idea, and I cannot stress that strongly enough, to try to complicate a tax scheme to accommodate social goals like the one you outlined. It is a worthwhile goal, and I, I don't want to diminish the significance of the impact of carbon tax on low income or poor middle-class income families. But the tax code is not an appropriate place to address those issues. 
The problem is that we as a society have always used the tax code for that purpose, but that is what gives tax lawyers a bad name. It's the legislative efforts to use the tax code as a tool of social policy, as opposed to purely a means of raising revenue from the population. Zach, you look like you have something you want to say. There's a lot of things I want to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think just the elephant in the room to me in all of this to get at whether you're talking about the middle class or this idea of a carbon tax and how to make it effective is you have to have a price that is so punitive that it fundamentally changes behavior. That's the bottom line because the only way you see reduction is the price has to be high enough to change the behavior that you no longer desire. And so you have to come at it in a way that fully admits that up front to say, we are asking Americans whether you use electricity, whether you drive a car to do for the majority, it has to impact the masses, the 1% that don't care, still don't care because they can afford to do what they want anyway, right? But for it to be impactful, you have to affect the masses throughout the whole country. And you're talking 300 million people and in some areas where as you move west and they're highly dependent on the interstate highway system, you're asking for fundamental changes in the way they live, work, and play, you have to admit that up front. And that's where I think this becomes a political impossibility to be successful. Well, and that's where I would actually push back significantly because probably the most pri- the primary successful example of this is in British Columbia. In 2008, the conservative, low-tax, business-friendly conservative party in British Columbia passed through a wide-reaching, very broad-based carbon tax. They started out at $10 Canadian per per ton. It rose by $5 a year through 2012. Okay, that's, and it was on almost everything. So it was very broad-based. They used those proceeds to cut income taxes. Now the lowest levels in Canada by the way, which Canada is still higher than the United States, but British Columbia is now the lowest lowest in Canada. They cut the bottom two brackets and instituted a low-income low tax credit, which, again, does create wrinkles, but that's one solution. They cut corporate taxes. Now, corporate taxes are the lowest in North America, some of the lowest in North America. The fuel consumption dropped by 16% in British Columbia, while across Canada it rose by 3%. Admissions through various industries were reduced by 5 to 15%. So it's so far doing all the things that we wanted it to do. At the same time, the British, the British Columbian economy kept pace with Canada and actually outpaced its neighbors. So it didn't have a negative economic impact. The Conservatives won re-election on the backs of passing this, even though the Liberal Party opposed it and wanted to end it. So the Conservatives won and now have, I think it was like, only 32% of the population now opposes the tax, which it started out about 50% opposed it when it was implemented. So clearly the voters seem to see some benefit to it. Can, can I just... so? But one, one more important thing is big business actually is one of the strongest supporters of it. They don't want to see it go higher. They don't want to see the price go up above 30, which is where it is now. But they support it, and they support it because they think it's the most efficient, most market-friendly solution out there. 
Now, British Columbia is a small population, and it's only one example, but it's an example of the way it's been done right, and it could work. So, so, so and I want to respond to both of you, but first to Warren. British Columbia, I have heard referred to as California of Canada. And so the fact that British Columbia and its business community are liberal enough to be open-minded about it is simply a reflection of the reality that most business people of certain leanings, including I think two of us and anybody who reads The Economist magazine since 1990 has been a proponent of a carbon tax. Those people aren't the people that I think Zach is concerned about in the middle of the country, be it Alberta in Canada or no, our flyover states, who are not quiet as open-minded about the idea of a carbon tax. And so, yes, I agree. I think there's going to be a very difficult push to have a national consensus on something like a carbon tax. I do think that it would be probably a rather expensive one. I do think that people will be pounding their chest, but I would look to people like Sarna and her friends to be pounding their chest and saying, this is for the future. Well, and what's interesting is it's also the nuclear industry that should be pounding its chest and demanding a carbon um, price of some kind. And they seem like they've been remarkably silent, even when uh, the circumstances would make it an opportune time to push it. So it it's it is interesting, and it is you know politics always trumps policy, um, and that's definitely why we're still talking about it in theoretical terms, I think, too. <laughs> um, and I just, you know, I think one of the biggest industries that we haven't really talked about, we talked about our price of uh, driving and our cost of our electricity and gas, but the cement, anything that has to do with cement is going to be severely impacted by a carbon tax. And that really cuts across a lot of different lines and boundaries. And that is the road structure itself. And um, so thinking really clearly about who needs to be won over in order to implement such attacks and then how could you have a simple solution without overcomplicating it through politics and give, you know, eating away at the simplicity of a, a good equation and not having it turn into another income tax um, situation where we've just got a bazillion loopholes and need to hire lawyers in order to understand how to pay the government to do what it does. Well, first you hire lawyers to tell you how not to pay, then you hire lawyers to <laughs> right. defend you against not paying. Which has clearly been one of the um, challenges in other countries that have carbon taxes, regardless of their level of success. That a lot of the... Um, a lot of times the tax is happening at a higher level than at the, the base level consumer, right? So it's at the utility level, the manufacturing level, et cetera. Um, th those are industries that tend to have a lot of money to invest in figuring out how to not have to, how to lessen their tax burden. And so you, you find a lot of people opting out of it. I mean, that's really, that's the Norway situation. So Norway had a carbon tax before anyone else had a carbon tax. And they're Emission, they've, it's, it's not been all that successful in terms of emissions reductions because most of the high emitters have figured out ways to not be um, bound by that tax or to work outside that tax, right? I, I think so. And probably the simplest loophole that Norway created was it exempted anyone who would comply with the European 
ETS. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, and surprisingly to a tax lawyer, why a country would create a carbon tax, which is more expensive than an ETS, but then exempt anyone from a carbon tax if they comply with the ETS is beyond my understanding. It's sort of like when people advocate in the United States, the idea that, well, we're going to have a simplified income tax and you can choose which one you're going to do. Well, if you're going to create a simplified tax return, but you give people a choice of which one they're going to do, guess what they're going to do? They're going to do both. And then they're going to calculate which one is better. Right. They're never going to choose the one where they pay more. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, and so that, I think, is probably the most fundamental failure of the Norwegian model is it allows people to opt out of the more punitive tax into a far more kind tax. And of course, they will take the opportunity. I don't think it requires a, a tax lawyer to give that advice. So, so, so speaking of opting out, one of the things that I have been thinking a lot about in thinking about this topic is if the United States were to move towards some sort of a carbon tax, and that's not necessarily happening globally, aren't we just setting ourselves up for a situation where our manufacturers who might see the pressure from that are simply going to relocate their manufacturing and take those jobs with them to, say, India, where they don't have a carbon tax, energy costs are lower, labor costs are lower. And so our, our, there, I just kind of want to hear you guys' thoughts on that. What would be the economic impact in terms of um, businesses voting with their feet? It, it's the fundamental problem of you can do a lot of great things locally. I, I can recycle. I can drive an efficient vehicle. I can do all of these great things. But then when you really think about it in the global context, me, I don't make a big impact. And that's that's always going to be the struggle in something like carbon. That is a, it is a global problem. And so long as it, there isn't a global solution, it will continue to be a global problem. And that's where it gets really, really difficult. It's great to have ideals. It's great to have principles. It's great to try and solve these problems to the best you can control because local control is usually the best control and it's the only thing you can control. But when you really think about it in that context, it becomes really difficult and we all feel, at least I feel small. So in that spirit though, like what kind of local opportunity might we have here in Northwest Michigan to test out something that has the potential to go viral and spread? I mean, could we create the awesomest carbon tax ever and <laughs> everyone's going to want a piece of it uh who who wants to be the who wants to volunteer to sell that to the michigan legislature well i, I, I guess i'll respond to that um <laughs> maybe it's we, not we, legislated <laughs> well northwest michigan maybe not rhode island has passed the first carbon tax in legislation in the united states so certainly at a state level it is possible um i think that we might be underselling the United States' ability to control the world. And let me explain what I mean. It is true that carbon is a worldwide product. However, we are a fairly big country in terms of our GDP and our influence in the world. We can certainly impose tariffs on countries that do not have the same level of carbon tax that we want in, to equalize it. And I realize I'm using the word tariff, which is an anathema to most economists. And so I was actually shocked to find out that once again, that liberal bastion, the Economist magazine was advocating tariffs since 
early 90s to address specifically the problem that Zach has talked about, namely equalizing the treatment of, con of manufacturers in countries that have a carbon tax with those who don't. And at the end of the day, us and China are the biggest polluters. So if we can fix it in our country and we can start altering the behavior of other countries, I think we're, we're a long way ahead. Certainly, if we were living in Iceland, I would feel as depressed as Zach is about our ability to influence things, but we don't live in Iceland. No offense to Icelandic listeners of this program. Yeah, we're, we're, this podcast is really popular in Iceland, so there goes my two subscribers. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, so that's my two cents. Is I, I do think it is possible at a local level, probably not at a hyper-local level like Northwest Michigan, but I think it's at least theoretically possible at a state level, as demonstrated by Rhode Island and as demonstrated by British Columbia and Canada. But at a more fundamental level, there are ways of protecting U.S.-based manufacturers from competing with countries that do not have a carbon tax. Okay, so I'm going to push back on that just a little. Of I, course. I, I, I agree with you, the, the concept of using a tariff to balance that. But when you start talking now at more of a state level, I, that's much, much harder to equalize, right? So if I'm doing business in Indiana, and Indiana enacts a carbon tax, and Michigan doesn't, it's not very hard for me to move my business from Indiana to Michigan. And there's not much Indiana can do in that scenario if, if they're trying to do it at a state level to protect themselves from that kind of manufacturing exodus. And we do know, and, and, and Zach, you can probably speak to this more than I can, but we do know that here in Michigan, we do we do know that businesses look at energy prices when deciding where to site their facilities, especially their energy-intensive facilities like data centers. That's assuming that the tax is on the manufacturing side rather than on the consumption side. It wouldn't, right? It wouldn't matter necessarily, right? In that scenario, like if they're a heavy energy user, regardless of whether. Not in, I'm sorry, not in the energy siting, but you own a factory in Indiana. It's if it um, installed a carbon tax on the end user rather than the manufacturer, where your incentive would be to not sell to folks. Who live in Indiana. Well, and that is one solution both for the state-to-state -state problem as well as the international issue is there's destination-based pricing. So depending on where the product ends up, mm -hmm. the carbon tax can be implemented based on the destination rather than where it's produced. But, and, and that's complicated as well, mm -hmm. but and again, global. whether you're talking about internationally and other countries not wanting to go along or other states not wanting to go along, that's a reality that's been throughout history in any kind of policy that's trying that's been tried to be implemented. So whether you're trying to talk about stopping whaling in the 19th century or you're talking about the spread of different policies through, through the United States, there's always a couple of states that end up being the guinea pigs. They hash it out. They're the laboratory. They figure out how to make it work. And then if it's a good policy, it spreads across the country. Or we then use our bully pulpit to spread it across the world like we have with some some other things, which, again, going back to Jan's point, we've got the economic weight to force some of these things if we want to. So another thought experiment, again, um, since in this realm of climate and uh, United States impact, we seem to have strong mayors rather than strong governors or uh, federal legislators. Is there some way that 
mayors could do I mean is there something I'm getting back to the hyperlocal and that's where my perspective is coming from anyway but is there some method for doing some kind of hyperlocal um, that ha- policy that has a similar impact well and, and this is where I will care I will tread carefully because <laughs> I'm aware of <clears throat> perceived conflicts between light and power and city commission, at least in Traverse City, driven in large part by me. Um, I think that when you're talking about hyper-local, you're really talking more about just making a political statement. You can make any political statement you want, but to me, it's sort of like when people want to put solar on their roofs, as opposed to large-scale, yeah, Rachel's just horrified by this, but solar on someone's residential property is a political statement. It literally makes no difference to the fundamental issue at hand. It doesn't stop you from making a political statement. And so, yes, at a local level, you can certainly invoke some kind of a penalty or some kind of a tax for heavy carbon fuels. But I think the reason I was suggesting a state level rather than a local level is, I mean, we only do have 50 states right? Last time I checked. Sorry. You know, we are a big manufacturing state. So, you know, we're kind of an important state, I'd like to think. We are a swing state in most elections. So that might work. And uh, I now that I've got the mic, um, when Rachel pushed back at me for the idea of, well, everyone is going to flee the state, this is where I would say, while suboptimal, it would be an opportunity to use the revenue generated from the carbon tax to, for example, reduce their other corporate income taxes. At the end of the day, the decision is a financial one, and the state makes a qualitative decision. Is it willing to lower the income taxes for a energy producer if that energy producer cleans up their act, no pun intended? Um, they can make that decision. It's not an ideal way to do it, once again, because you're starting to tinker with it, but it is a way to address this issue at a state level if we're not doing it at a national level. So and I want to just stop a second and summarize where we're at because we don't have a ton more time. But before I do that, I have to clarify. When Jan said I was horrified when he started talking about rooftop solar, I am not horrified by rooftop solar. <laughs> I was simply horrified by my comments about it. Simply concerned about the direction the conversation was going uh, right now. So, uh, just for all of our listeners out there, uh, all two now no longer in Iceland. Um, What I keep hearing though is there the the struck the way that we set up a carbon tax. There is a lot at stake in that in terms of its ability to successfully mitigate some of the the potential economic pitfalls and also achieve or accomplish anything in other words there it there's no it it, it can't be that's where it gets hard to sell i think the easy sell is oh it's simple we're going to put a tax on carbon we're going to send you a check it will be revenue neutral no one will be hurt and it will all work but it's not quite that simple in fact we've identified all of these different complexities in the structure that would impact whether it's works at all and also whether it's devastating to the economy or a, a potential boon to the economy Right? Does it, well, that sound again, right? where it's been done successfully, if you want to call it successfully, is it's it's phased in over time. Everyone has a, a schedule that they can plan by. Mm-hmm. It, it starts out pretty modestly, but again, to Zach's point, it climbs to a point where it is impactful. It has to be, or it, it, there's no point in doing it. 
So there are ways to, to implement it. And, and again, where it's been, in my opinion, done successfully, it's cor- corresponding or it's, it's, it's done at the same time as lowering other broad-based taxes, income taxes, specifically corporate taxes as well. You'd have to tie all that together, and you'd have to do it in such a way that there was very little room to game the system or cheat the system or ask for special dispensation for this, that, or the other industry, because that is the biggest thing. You know, going back to the British Columbia example, it is the cement makers that are the most unhappy. The business community in general is is in favor of it, but it's the cement makers that are really the ones mm-hmm. that fought it from the beginning and, and still don't like it. So you are going to have some losers in the situation. You have to be kind of be honest about that and upfront about it too. Cement is going to be more expensive. Roads are going to be more expensive if we do this. Are you willing, as a population, to accept that trade-off? And that's that's a conversation you have to have. Yeah, and I want to actually I want to ask Zach you a specific question, just given who we think our listeners are. What would be the so we talked about the impact on manufacturing, consumers, et cetera. What would be the impact on utility planning and utilities of a carbon tax? And how does that compare to other ways of regulating? So I think, my opinion, uh, a carbon tax in that way is far superior to anything else we're looking at. When you talk about clean power plan or cap and trade or anything else that we could do from a policy perspective, if you want to see the problem, you identify the problem to be carbon, you want to address the problem, a carbon tax is the way to do that to allow for certainty in planning, understanding where we're going, what we need to do, and it's a lot less complex. I mean, we've talked about how complex it is, but then you move to other regulations that are out there that are meant to accomplish similar things. It's actually far less complex than those. So from purely that perspective, it is the superior option, but it's politically very, very difficult. And I guess the one thing I would add is, once again, questioning the premise of the, or questioning the premise of the question. I think a carbon tax is a very elegant and simple solution. It is very easy. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you, were you going to use the word elegant? Okay. (laughs) We read the same publications clearly. Uh, This would be Warren and I. I think the complexity is purely a function of trying to pass it through the legislative process. Now, one question I frankly have is how much of the complexity is imagined as opposed to is actually there. It is very easy for someone in the legislature to pound their chest and say, my constituents will never go for it. It's literally probably no basis for saying that. It's just we're saying that. We're then altering public policy based on our perception of what our constituents would say. But from the design standpoint, the design is very simple. You pick a price, which I think Warren has in his notes what the price would be, so I won't steal his thunder. But you pick a price and you impose it. And I actually think that people are not going to care as much as everyone else thinks that they will. Oh, and this, wow. Hmm. Which I think history bears out to a degree, right? Like you start with a lot of pushback, and then where these have gone in, there's far less pushback over time. Is that well, who true? does the tax benefit? 
And that's the big question is not so much the taxation part of it, but then what happens to that revenue that's generated? And yeah. is that the stickier part? But that's then? a part of the design too, right? It, it has to be. Yeah. Well, but that's what, once again, you go back to the, the basic, you know, you're not inventing a tax from scratch. There's a basic principle in taxation, which is what we started with. Namely, you want to have as broad a base as you can possibly have because that allows for rates as low as it possibly can. So if, for example, you decide that you want to take care of low-income people, well, then you start shrinking your base. Well, now your cement manufacturers have to pay a higher price. If you don't start making the exemptions, your rates will always be the lowest. Mm-hmm. That's just a cardinal rule. And so the political opposition is far more diffused if you're not picking winners and losers from the get-go. The problem is when the legislators decide that they're going to pick winners and losers, thereby generating somebody who really cares about not being a loser and starts lobbying for not being a loser. No? And it can be easily manipulated by various special interests, yep. that whole process. Yeah. yeah. And Only if you allow it to. Yes, correct. Do and, we have and a we all we all know nothing that goes to legislators <laughs> is ever impacted by special interests. I was just and, that, and that's my that's that's my struggle. That's just my skepticism of how the system works. And there are a lot of simple policies, but I'll start with the two words we're talking about: carbon. That's really politically difficult, and tax, which is also really politically difficult. It's a sim- I, I agree with you, Jan. It's very simple in theory. And if it were able to sail through with a simple structure that says there's a price, I would 100% agree that it could work. Where I struggle is as soon as people start to get eyes on it, and it's always implemented by people, and it's implemented by government, and this is big government, it gets really, really messy. Which is one of the reasons why you might want to go to a state level, because... I don't think we want to go to a state level. I really don't. A lot of successful policies, again, that's how they're formed. They go through the laboratory of the states, and you get... Also known as laboratories of freedom. Well, You get, you get 20 different <laughs> variations on a policy, and it ends up... You eventually get some acceptance. You get some consensus about moving forward with a, a nationwide policy. Well, it's it's happened on a, in a number of way, you know, a number of policies. We experiment on California all the time. Yeah. Or they experiment on they experiment themselves. And I guess it, maybe yeah. this is going to be a lead into our next podcast because Rachel's already going to probably book us for the next podcast, mm-hmm. but I think the the true elephant in the room is the denial of climate change and human causes of climate change. So we're not really arguing in a carbon tax about whether or not we should have a $25 per ton of CO2 emissions. We're arguing about, in in the holes of power, about the very concept of a carbon tax. And I think once that battle is won, if it is won, the idea of a carbon tax becomes far more tolerable. And I think that when people are opposing the carbon tax in the legislature, they're really fighting a different battle. Because if you truly believe that carbon imposes the externality that people who support it believe it imposes, it's not a difficult question. The reason it becomes a difficult question is because half of the politicians can pound their chest and say, I'm a skeptic. Okay. But only 25% of the population is a skeptic. 
And and this very well may be a preview of a future podcast topic. And it's actually uh, good timing because we're just right about out of time right now. Does anybody have any final words other than that? It's what it sounds like. We see a lot of potential with a carbon tax, but we also recognize there's a, a lot of things that would have to happen before we're going to see that come to fruition. Yeah, I thought, Jan, you were going to say the elephant in the room was uh, our capacity for good governance. And if we could solve that, we probably wouldn't need a carbon tax anyway. That is also its own podcast. (laughs) So we've now planned out the next several podcasts. Anybody else have any other podcast ideas for the future? No. I'm good. Well, thank you all for joining us and um, taking the time to to think pretty critically about, a, like I said, a fairly deceptively simple but actually fairly complicated topic with a lot of implications. I really appreciate, appreciate your time. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you.